Welcome to Purpose and Productivity, a podcast made possible by the SkyPass Group of Companies and SkyLife Success. Join Krish Dunham, an author and speaker whose messaging has been described as the junction where God's ability and man's availability meet hope's accessibility. G.K. Chesterton once said that fallacies do not cease to be fallacies because they become fashions. Impartiality is a pompous name for indifference, which is an elegant name for ignorance. And I love these two. An inconvenience is only an adventure wrongly considered. An adventure is an inconvenience rightly considered. What embitters the world is not excess of criticism, but an absence of self-criticism. How true. Not enough self-criticism in this world. There's a lot of criticism of others, of their actions, of their emotions, of their adventures, and of their fallacies. Nobody wants to take a strong look in the mirror and say, maybe I am the problem. And Chesterton also reminds us that when asked what the problems were with the world, he says, I am. Today, I want to embark on a journey called the contradictions that control. And what are some of the contradictions that control us? We seemingly are at a time of impasse where everybody is bothered about what everybody else is doing. There is nothing called personal space anymore. You cannot even talk in the confines of your own mind because unless you subscribe to groupthink, you're going to be labeled prejudicial and bigoted. These are contradictions that control. I always come from the standard of human anthropology. I always try to give you advice from the realm of human behavior. The engineering of our mind that allows us to positively and proactively participate in life while being a productive denizen. Discipline then is uh, the dignity that comes from within. It, uh, it is some of the fulfillment that comes when you put your head on the pillow at night and said, I made a contribution to humanity. We have talked ad nauseum about the blame game and the aim game. And the blame game is something that is so rampant in today's society. Everything is political. Everything is prejudicial. Everything is bigoted. Nothing can be belief oriented. And again, as Dennis Miller would say, I don't want to get off on a rant here, but most of you know where I stand on a lot of these feelings. By the same token, when the clock strikes four o'clock in the morning, I am promptly awake. I go down and with discipline try to navigate something that day. There is still sleep in the eyes. There's a little uh, misstep in our gate for the simple reason that yesterday may not have been as productive. The last six months have taken a toll on all of humanity. Savings are getting exhausted as we speak. People's livelihoods are being challenged. But the bottom line is still this. How then do we overcome these contradictions that are controlling us? The mayhem and misery and the mishaps that we are seeing on the streets of the world are just that. Today, there is a rampant discontent and a discomfort that comes with all these contradictions that don't make sense. And again, I'm talking about it from an anthropological standpoint, saying where does hope come from and how do we tackle these contradictions that control us so that we can look at our own purpose and look at our own productivity and ask ourselves, what are the steps we can take? What are the processes we can implement? What are the protocols we can engage in? How do we participate again to become productive? How do we re 
populate our mind with good thoughts, with clean thoughts, with powerful thoughts? How do we engage in life again to start building up our bank balance, to start tackling those portfolios that saw a complete crack in them as we try to create sustenance? How do we go back to being charitable individuals that have a true concern for other people, but that charity can only come if we ourselves are producing and producing to the excess that there is enough for us and for others to go around. The biblical edict of taking care of our elders and taking care of our widows and orphans does not cease, does not stop. And so much of charity has come to a standstill because basic productivity has come to a standstill and humanity is relegating itself to a shouting match that is just contradictory in nature. And you will never get a conciliatory tone from anybody if the contradictions that they are seeing thrown at them basically are against what their character at any given time is willing to adhere to. So let's look at some of these contradictions that control. If you have the discipline to believe what you agree with, you must also have the discipline to study what others believe and agree with. This seems to be a foundational impasse in any dialogue. If you just go onto any channel on television, they seem to have come up with an opinion that is entirely their editorial opinion, and they have a right to do so. It's part of their own reportage, or if they want to call themselves an authentic news organization, they have to be objective, but we know that ship has sailed. And I'm talking to both sides. One side argues on one side of the equation, the other side argues on the other side of the equation, and entire nations have labeled their media as to who they support in terms of political party. It's no longer the freedom of speech that comes with the right to reporting that which is accurate and doing it objectively. So even they have a bent. But when they bring a guest who disagrees with them, they are almost at loss for words if someone dare come into their space with an alternative point of view. Recently, uh, there's a show in the United States which have a bunch of uh, folks talking on it and they've been quite popular and they're kind of very left in their ideology. They're very liberal in what they espouse. And they do have a couple of conservative voices on there, but the conservative voices are always looked at with this disdain and scorn. On the other side, you have the other channels which are purely conservative in nature and they look at scorn to the liberal people. Now, I'm a conservative by nature. I'm a traditionalist by the belief system. I'm a theologian in my practice. I'm very faithful in what I espouse. So I, I tend to lean towards the free market thought process in just about everything I do. But one thing that I have learned in my journey of understanding apologetics uh, and all of this other stuff is if I'm going to debate and I'm going to stand in the marketplace and espouse a belief like I'm doing in purpose and productivity and advocate for productivity and advocate for purpose and advocate for goals and advocate for discipline and advocate for hard work and do all the things that I'm doing, I have to understand why some people don't want to do it. I have to understand why some people believe that they are now going to be forever on the sidelines of life, looking at the haves and believing that they are have-nots. If I espouse a Judeo-Christian belief, I have to understand what people who subscribe to Islam are reading, what the Buddhists are reading, what the Jainists are reading, what the Hindu philosophy is espousing. And I have to do it with the discipline that if I believe what I believe, I have to understand what they believe, at least through the written word, if not, through any some other kind of auditory 
uh, feedback mechanisms as well because you want to be well-rounded. At the end of the day, you just don't want to win an argument because you're intellectually uh, feel that you're more qualified to do so, or you just don't want to win a stand in the public square because you shout louder than others. And here's the irony of it. Some of the shouting that is going on on the streets, and I'm talking predominantly about America, is laced with four-letter expletives. It's like every part of their graffiti, every second word out of their mouth is a non-working word, which means their vocabulary is not espousing anything. They're just using profanity to try to get their point across. And that is a contradiction that controls them. They actually believe that if they just shout profanity over and over again, they are going to consider themselves being rendered important. Now, I can understand the frustration it may take to get to the point where all you're left with is profanity. And I found myself on the wrong side of the tracks many a time when, but I wrote to myself a letter of dignity saying that if I'm going to relegate myself to a level so low that I cannot even look at what I have accomplished to this point, then the fight is over before it begins. So one of the contradictions that control us is just this, not having the discipline that you have to study and understand what someone else believes. So when I talk about communism, I've studied the communist manifestos, I've studied the work of Lenin, I've studied the work of Stalin, I've seen what they have written, I've been to Auschwitz, I saw what totalitarianism did with Nazi Germany, I've studied some of the revolutions that took place in Colombia, I've understood what Chavez's popularity was all about, I went and understood what, I tried to read what what Cuba was all about, why was why does the world operate the way it is? And sometimes when you talk to the people on the streets of anywhere, their myopic frustration about what they believe is so limited that they do not even bother to understand what that there are 200 plus principalities in this world, that the, many of them have different ideas. When I first began my international career of traveling, a small book saved my hide. It was called Kiss, Bow, or Shake Hands. One page on each country, their primary imports, their principal exports, what did their currency mean? Who are their heroes? What does the revolution stand for? What was the language? What was the etymology? Where did it come from? And then when I arrive in those countries, I go to the newspaper and I look at the sports section. Who are the people that these people cherish? Who are the heroes that they look up to? Who are their role models in history? This allows you to have a civil conversation with someone because you know at least enough, if not more than the other person. But right now we have this ignorance that is so broad, and that's why Chesterton said it's just masked. And just because someone is educated doesn't mean that they're automatically intelligent. Some of the brightest people I met never went to college. Some of the dumbest people I met are people who actually teach in college. And I've had the privilege to do both. I was an underachieving student who has since gone to college and taught. So education doesn't mean anything. But right now at the age of 58, I'm actually looking at furthering my education in some areas and I'm applied to a couple of educational institutions, a process that might take three or four years. Why? I want to understand more of what I believe and give myself a chance in this learning to understand more of what others believe. These contradictions will derail you. Look at yourself and ask yourself, what are the contradictions that are controlling you? Mr. Ziegler often said to me, unless you give yourself permission to challenge every assumption you've ever held dear, the world will remain something aloof, something distant, a forbidden treasure, a forbidden pleasure. Second, just because you hold your breath, the universe doesn't suffocate. Now, right now, all of us are holding our breath because we all wear a mask. 
And right now, that, that seems to be the fight. Do I carry, you know, this whole mask mandate is a different way of holding your breath and telling yourself that you disagree with what's going on. You can disagree all you want, but at the end of the time, end of the day, some laws will be upheld, some laws will be challenged, depending on the libera- libera- uh, liberal nature of your uh, country or the, the way in which policies are accepted and prescribed. Some will be overthrown, as we are seeing in the United States. But the bottom line is this, when you wake up every morning and you hold your breath in frustration, all you're going to do is turn blue. Uh, Right now, there are people who say that, you know, I don't want to breathe the air you breathe. Well, you don't breathe the air you breathe, you may die because ultimately we all have to breathe air. But the principle is still the same. It is a contradiction that controls us. Just because you hold the breath, universe doesn't suffocate. Now, some people are mad right now because they're wondering how other people are going through life. As I shared on a previous podcast, a person protesting, walking on the street, has a right to protest. They have a right to a bullhorn, they have a right to a foghorn or whatever you call them, and they have a right to shout. But someone else was sitting innocuously on a sidewalk cafe after six months of lockdown, enjoying a beverage and trying to spend some quality time. This person walking by was so mad that the other person was not calloused enough and they thought they were insensitive to their cause. Now, here's the principle. You're holding your breath for a cause doesn't mean the universe suffocates. Other people go along. Uh, I remember one of the scenes from the movie Gandhi. It explains this principle in a roundabout way. The gentleman on trial, as I think his name was Dyer or somebody like that, who had authorized the Jallianwala Bagh massacre, where a bunch of people had congregated in a place that had one aperture. He brought armored tanks in there. He brought a firing squad in there, and he gave them permission to disperse or gave them orders to disperse. And uh, when they couldn't disperse, he opened fire, and a bunch of people were killed. At his trial years uh, some time later, they said that, uh, hey, I gave them permission and I gave them permission to disperse. And I remember one of the people questioning this general back saying, when a Renfield rifle is pointed at a child, how much time does he have to make a decision? And I thought to myself, that was a very interesting way of looking at it. You cannot give people ultimatums that they cannot agree with or participate in. A child with a rifle pointed at them at this massacre that took place at one of the shrines in India, that is now a, a place visited in India and was one of the hallmarks of the Indian freedom struggle. A child looking at a rifle does not have chance to make a split decision to participate in evacuating just because you ordered. So just because you hold your breath, the universe doesn't suffocate. Third, What you think is important to you may not be important to others. I don't know why this is such a hard principle to understand. And it's getting more and more obnoxious by the day. And I'm talking about all sides. And again, listen, politically, I do have a bent. Some of you know I lean towards the conservative thought process. I'm a free market guy. I lean towards the religious side. I have never met, meant, or uh, never shared any of my principles by trying to disguise what I believe. If you attended my speeches, watch my YouTube clips, read my books, you know what I stand for. But by the same token, I know that a lot of people do not subscribe to me. I remember one time I was speaking at a forum in North Carolina and a man stood up and he says, I'm an atheist. I do not believe in your God. So I jokingly said, well, uh, then you shouldn't bother you if my God doesn't answer. And he kind of looked at me and he says, you know what? I disagree with you, but I love your style. I cannot disagree with your style. You make listening to you pleasant. And sometimes one of the greatest joys I have is that when someone who has dissent with me comes up and compliments me for my effort, 
And the reason I'm getting a little uh, animated today is that these are things that are derailing productivity. People are walking around like zombies thinking that just because something is important to them, it has to be important to everybody else. And entire careers are being ruined on this. It is called part of this called the cancel culture. And I don't know if someone will come after me as a result of this. There's probably a likelihood they will, saying that, you know what? As a first-generation immigrant who is brown and who was raised by a man who went into, from Yazoo City, Mississippi, and uh, occasionally called him boy, which was a term of endearment me, or that he called me, what? His token immigrant. And I remember asking him one time, what does token immigrant mean? He says, I guess everybody has to have a token immigrant. I sure am glad you're mine. And it was tongue-in-cheek. Years later, when they were doing a documentary on his life, the person who did the documentary asked me, if Mr. Ziegler was here now, what would you say? And I remember breaking down into absolute sobs, which actually made it onto that documentary. I said, who will call me his token immigrant again? It was a term of endearment amongst this uh, so many 330 million people in America. One person looked at me and he says, you're my token immigrant. There was no ownership there. There was no malintent there. It was a term of affection. But just because you think something is important to you, it may not be important to others. Then it's not a zero-sum game. Someone has to produce for others to procure and for provision to exist. This nonsense that somehow money will come from trees is being so paraded down. I watched an interview of a young girl who had been to college, and she was talking about the the one percenters or the top one percent. And the interviewer asked her, what if the top one percent uses their loopholes and moves to a haven that is safe and goes to some tax haven like Switzerland or the Cayman Islands or something? Her logic astounded me when she says there will always be a one percent. I thought to herself, on one side, she was right. Any time there is a gap at the top, other people will rise to it. Look at all the inventions that were made by the people who were not so-called educated uh, intelligentsia. Most of these people apparently did drop out of college when you look at Bill Gates and Microsoft or you look at Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. But in the dorm of a hostel room or in a dorm of a, a college dorm, they had an idea that could change the world. And many of their ideas did change the world. A man just gets in his car and drives out west and the result is Amazon. Of course, now you want to trash him because somehow you believe that he's got more wealth than God allows. But where were you when he got into his car with an idea? The interesting, her interesting concept was there'll always be a 1%. Yeah, that's called achievement. But the logic was there will always be someone to take from is defeating. It is you telling yourself with convincing authority that you will never be part of that. Why can't you be the guy who gets in a car and drives west with an idea that will become Amazon that everybody during lockdown had to use? So it's a fascinating thing. When I came as a first generation immigrant, that was what was pointed out to me. Don't look at others who came like you who may not have made it or who had some roadblocks along the way. Why don't you look at those that made it? And that's the interesting part. It's not a zero sum game. For everybody who moves from Chicago to Boston to become a millionaire, someone moved from Boston to Seattle to become a billionaire. So it's never a zero-sum game. There is always going to be room, and that room is constantly fluid, and you have to ask yourself whether you want to be part of that. 
years ago before Jim Rohn passed away, I remember attending one of his seminars and I had the privilege of being on a program, not me personally, I was Mr. Ziegler's assistant, but it was Jim Rohn, Tom Hopkins and Mr. Ziegler for an event in Australia. And I got a chance to talk to some of these giants in the field of human engineering. And Jim Rohn used to tell the story about his mentor. And one day when he came back and the mentor asked him, how much do you make? And Jim Rohn gave the number that he made at that company. And his mentor said, how come you only make that much? And, the, uh, and he said to the mentor, well, that's all they'll pay. He says, no, that's all they'll pay you. And the difference was you. And Jim Rohn said that was, the, that was a spark in his life because he suddenly began to realize when the mentor said to him, how big is the organization's pay, win, pay pie? How big is that pie of all what they give out to people, whether it's in bonuses and spiffs and salaries and commissions, they're giving out X. This is called what they are offering. And how do you work towards getting a bigger piece of that pie? So for me, I realized very quickly, if I was a telemarketer and I was going to travel with Mr. Ziegler, I had to aim for a bigger piece of the pie. Now, the only way you get a bigger piece of the pie is you tell them, you give them ideas that are not going to cost them a bigger piece of the pie without you having done anything. And that is the issue here. Most people will stand on the periphery of life saying, Lord, I've not planted a single seed, but give me a bumper crop and I'll do more than anybody next year. That's a contradiction. It won't work. Or you taking a failing grade home and telling your teacher, don't, uh, don't give me a failing grade. Pass me this time because my mom will skin me alive if I bring home a failing grade. Pass me this time and I'll put in more effort next time. What you're saying is reward me now, I'll perform later. That's baloney. It never works that way. When Jim Rohn said that statement, that's all they'll pay you, I realized I had to write a proposal and get to do one other job and offer them the opportunity to do that job with no additional investment in me for a period of six months and telling them with guarantee that I will always exceed what they had already hired me to do. And that's how my career began. And lastly, Dignity comes from within. Other people can fill you, but only you can fulfill yourself. I want you to mull on that last part. Dignity comes from within. The four principles that control us are if you have the discipline to believe what you agree with, you must also have the discipline to study what others believe and agree with. Just because you hold your breath, the universe does not suffocate. What you think is important may not be important to others, and it's not a zero-sum game. Someone has to produce for others to procure. Until next time, ponder this. Dignity comes from within. Other people can fill you, but only you can fulfill yourself. And maybe we'll tackle that in the next podcast. Until next time, this has been Purpose and Productivity. Good luck. God bless. That concludes another episode of Purpose and Productivity with Chris Dunham, brought to you by Skylife Success. Please subscribe, rate, and visit us on the web at chrisdunham.com and skylifesuccess.com, where you can find our social media links and access to additional resources. Till next time, happy learning and happy living.